Resilient Cyber Podcast brings you conversations from diverse cybersecurity professionals, ranging from executives, subject matter experts, and aspiring entrants. Today's diverse threat landscape requires systems that can withstand a variety of cyber incidents, remaining trustworthy and secure. Thank you for joining us on the Resilient Cyber Podcast. My name is Chris Hughes, along with my co-host, Dr. Nikki Robinson. Hey, everybody. And today we're joined by Dr. Margaret Cunningham. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me this morning. All right. So uh, Dr. Margaret Cunningham, she is an experimental psychologist, uh, as well as the principal research scientist for human behavior at Force Points X Lab, which is pretty cool. Uh, in this role, she serves as the behavioral science subject matter expert in an interdisciplinary security team driving the development of human-centric security solutions. Previously, she also supported the Human Systems Integration Branch of the Department of Homeland Security, DHS. Welcome. Thanks so much. I know it's a tongue twister, some of those uh, <laughs> big long lists there. <laughs> yeah, but it's but it's super cool. And it's, it's you know, we've had, uh, we had Dr. Calvin Nobles on before, who was kind of our human factor cyber uh, as well. And then I got to, a chance to meet you and you're sort of doing working on that same human factors and cybersecurity. So to kind of kick us off, because we we kind of talked about this before, but could you kind of give us a, a brief description of your background in cognitive psychology and then kind of what led you into cybersecurity from there? Yeah, sure. So I actually came from a pretty um, strong cognitive science background. My PhD was applied experimental psychology and I focused on the types of mistakes people made when they were interrupted, which is really fun because everyone's like, oh my gosh, me too. I totally get it. But it was really much more about uh, memory and attention. And I somehow landed in a more consulting role where I was looking at physical security products and R&D. And how can we see how these various products, when we introduce them into complex work settings, impact human performance? And they were like, hey, you know, Margaret, can you measure this stuff? And I said, sure thing. Uh, it's not going to be perfect, but we can do it. And so working on all of this different tech integration and helping to support people doing really hard things, I got super interested personally in how human factors also impact cybersecurity. And um, it was kind of a leap of faith. I sent in my resume and I was like, you know what? I'm going to check this place out. They're looking for a behavioral scientist. and I didn't even know what all of the words in the job posting meant, but I applied anyway. <laughs> and they called me and I'm like, I can do like some of this stuff and not any of this other stuff. Like I'm like, I'm not a pen tester. Okay. But I can do all of these other things. I can help you make your measurement of behavior better and I can help you get that into your products. And so here I am. And I've been there for, I don't know, about three and a half years. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, it's really interesting. So this whole concept of like psychology being integrated or, you know, impacting cybersecurity is something like, it seems kind of intuitive when I sit and think about it, but honestly, it's something I never heard people talk about too much until I started, you know, talking to Dr. Nikki Robinson about human factors and cybersecurity and things like that. So, you know, how do you think psychology impacts uh, cybersecurity? I have a really hard time figuring out where it doesn't impact cybersecurity. So we're talking about everything from the decisions that are made by software developers to the way that we're processing visual events. Uh, analysts depend so heavily on um, how things are interpreted and presented to them on screens. We're also influenced by our past 
So maybe I worked in a place that had a certain kind of breach all the time. I get a new job. I carry that assumption forward. You know, that's something that really has to do with personal psychology as well. And then we have a lot of other things. So I, I tend to work a bit in the insider threat world. And um, as we know, there are psychological factors there as well. So, I mean, it's it touches every piece. Yeah, I think it's, it's truly undeniable that it does. Um, and I wonder why it's not part of the conversation more, to be honest. It's like, uh, I don't know if it's because humans are really complex and it's, it's kind of a difficult thing to, to sort out and, and think through. But, you know, do you see that? changing as we move forward? Like as it, as we move forward in cyber, do you think the human factor will be something that we'll discuss more often? Oh, you know, I, I think that one of the, the strange things about psychology is that we all think we can do it. We're all people. So you're like, Hey, psychology makes sense. Seems like we should put it in there somewhere. I get it. And then all of a sudden, when it comes to actually uh, really understanding it or like coming up with a solution that meets all of those human needs, they're like, Ooh, (laughs) wait a minute. Maybe I don't know. (laughs) And by then it's like really far down the line. And that's no big deal. Like this is the same thing that happens to teachers. Like I have, I went to school. I get it. I'm a person. I get it. And so there's a little bit of, um, strange assumptions that anybody could do it. And, and that's not, you know, it's, it's a real deal thing. <laughs> yeah. It's a, uh, it's, so it's interesting because, you know, I didn't really know about human factors in cybersecurity until I found the human factors degree. And then I was like, Oh, I wonder if I can blend security into this. And then I found Dr. Calvin Nobles. And then I found you and I found a couple of other people. And I was like, Oh, so there are a couple of us out there, but I think it's kind of a, as, as far as I've kind of seen, it seems like the maturity of cybersecurity programs can be kind of part of that too, is it's like, we've got so many other things we're trying to fix. We've got new tech, we're going to the cloud, we're trying to you know get rid of end of life software, we're trying to do all these things. And so integrating psychology can be kind of tough at the end of the day too. It's like, do we have, can we, do we have time? Do we have resources? Can we really do this? Yeah, it seems like a lot of programs are very compliance focused, which fantastic, please meet all of those criteria. <laughs> but um, moving beyond that and maintaining that, even at the very basic level, can be expensive depending on the industry. And so by the time we get to, you know, how can we make this work better for all of the human beings? We're like, well, I don't know, because the technology is just scraping by. <laughs> right, right. So that kind of takes us into our next question, because we talked about how psychology is kind of uh, at play in cybersecurity. And you wrote this great article. Uh, we're definitely going to link to it because I, I think it's it's, an, it's a great read for everybody. But so besides psychology, how do you think philosophy plays into cybersecurity? You know, so we have a lot of questions that we ask, like, what is true? What is false? What is good? What is bad? And those are really philosophical questions. And, you know, we, we keep coming back to places that we're saying we need to understand the context around what's going on on our networks. We need to understand the context around human behavior. What do we pay attention to? Uh, there's a lot of hype around anomaly detection. But you know what? Anomaly doesn't really mean bad. It just means different. So we have to start thinking about that next layer down. And so it's, it's a very, when you step back and start thinking about what the kind of dichotomous yes, no stuff is that we program into computer systems, why do we do it that way? And are we doing it the right way? And don't even get me started on like ethics. <laughs> I won't go there right now. It'll take too long. But I mean, it's, it's all intertwined there. Yeah, that makes sense. It makes sense for sure. 
I'm building on the psychology piece, you know, how do you feel neuroscience plays into cybersecurity? And like on that note, you know, maybe touch on cognitive limitations and how they may affect the cybersecurity career field. And if I can't just throw in this little piece, I feel like, you know, the remote paradigm, right? It, it takes uh, the cognitive load to another level because people have a hard time disconnecting, in my opinion. I feel like I'm always connected. I'm always online. I'm always connected to work. Uh, so I'll, I'll drop that and see your thought. Yeah. So asking me the easy questions, let's talk about neuroscience. No, thank No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> so, you know, when we're thinking about neuroscience, we're thinking about all of these different parts of the brain and how they communicate and how things are linked. And how is that different than how we speak about networks? It's very similar. How fast are things going? What's connected? Where are the problems? What do we learn? How do we learn? And we've adopted very much a parallel between the words we use in neuroscience and the words we use in computers and computing. It's kind of wild. You can find like computational models of memory, for instance, that are very much the same as the computational models of memories used for computers. So as one field advances, the other field advances. It's, it's like this parallel journey into, I don't know, the deepest abyss of the ocean. Because I tell you what, I think we've just scratched the surface. Um, so it's really cool to watch both fields develop in parallel. So do you feel like with the changes in both neuroscience and cybersecurity, do you feel like there are implications with remote work? So do you feel like because a lot of us are at home now and all the time and we're constantly, I know I can speak for myself, constantly juggling things that are going on at home and the kids and work and school and writing and all of these other things, you know, do you feel like there, there are some implications there? Yeah. I mean, remote work has been pretty wild. And, you know, I mentioned earlier, I did my dissertation on being interrupted, actually being interrupted many times. So like interrupted once and then another thing and then another thing and then another thing. And then how do you return and finish all of these little tasks that have been left lingering that I've kind of forgotten about and I don't know where I am. And I think that that actually captures what it's like to work from home especially for people who have uh, like caregiving responsibilities or who may be just juggling a lot more stuff. And we can't really say like, hey, you know, Margaret is working at home and so now she's making more mistakes. But we are sort of prone to making more mistakes when we're distracted, when we're overwhelmed. And given the additional context of chronic ongoing stress from the pandemic, from the news cycle. I mean, we're getting it from every angle. And there's a point where we can't continue, you know, like we just can't stay at that level of, of hype and that level of fear and that level of my shoulders are hitting my ears. And it's, it's really draining. And that drain is uh, not going to get us ready for our best performance anywhere. <laughs> right. Right. No, no, I think it's a great point. And it's, it's, so it's one of the reasons why I started getting interested in cognitive limitations too. Uh, you know, not just from a remote work angle, but also, you know, you, it, it's layered, right? Because then we also have the increasing complexity of our jobs. You know, we we're constantly evaluating new software. Uh, we're working with different teams. We're trying to mature our programs. And so uh, I, I was starting to like play with this, like how do cognitive limitations affect our cybersecurity programs and our, our, like our SOC analysts and everybody. So super interesting. So I also know just from our conversations, you have some new research, uh, out. Uh, you have a new article out. 
It is called How Minor Mistakes When Remote Working Could Lead to Major Cybersecurity Breaches. So that blends perfectly into uh, that article. I don't know how I planned that. So, uh, so I'd love to kind of hear about your findings, how you kind of, what, what your study was about. Yeah. So it started from this idea that we all do really tiny bad things all the time. <laughs> like, I know I'm doing bad things sometimes. I'm like, ooh, oh well. I'll just send it this way because I didn't, it's annoying. It got stuck in my corporate outbox. But then you realize that nothing happened when you did that tiny bad thing. And then you're like, wait a minute, that actually was easier. So I've been rewarded for doing the tiny bad crime. And now I start creeping. I start creeping. I'm like breaking bad here, right? Like little things start going haywire. And this study actually when I was talking to my my friends in, in the company, they were like, Margaret, we have some extra cash. Do you want to do a survey? I said, yeah, come on. And so we got um, 2,000 people to respond, which by the way is a lot. Uh, 1,000 from Germany and 1,000 from the UK, age range from 18 to 80. <laughs> Lots of different types of jobs, tech, non-tech, whatever. And we asked them a bunch of questions about what it was like to work from home, and all of these people had transitioned from an office to home. So it was like a, a great sample. And uh, turns out like 50% of the people who responded are using personal USB sticks to store corporate data <laughs> because it's easier, right? And some of these same people are saying, you know, the reason why I'm doing that is because the tech or the security that I'm offered from my company makes it too hard to do my job. So you know, cracking down with more rules is unlikely to help, <laughs> but it's, it shows that we need those shortcuts. Yeah. I just want to pick on that a bit. Like, you know, security is often seen as uh, implementing friction into people's like workflows and the way they operate. And then people find workarounds, you know, how do we balance that, that dichotomy of one implement, you know, security rigor and, and, and more process and more form, you know, formal ways of doing things within an organization, but also not push it to the point where people are finding workarounds and you don't really know how people are doing things or where data is you know, going, how it's going somewhere. You know, how do we balance that? It sounds like such a balancing act to me. It's a huge balancing act. And I think everything good is. Everything that's really good in this space is hard to do, but also considers everything as like a contextual you know, ordeal. So when you, th- when you talk to most companies, like how much of their data is really that important? You got to figure that out first because- we really want to free people to do things instead of like control and like corral everyone. So the more freedom we can give people, the less issue we have. And really, if you try and control and control and control, you lose more and more visibility. You lose all of this visibility. You don't know where your stuff is. You don't know where it went or how it left or whatever, because I took a, I took a picture of it on my phone and texted it to Nikki. Okay. So uh, that does happen all the time. Um, <laughs> so you have to have this accounting of what's important. You also have to have a really, really deep understanding of the people who are touching your important stuff and whether or not it's weird, whether or not it's totally fine. And frankly, people say things like, well, this is our, our top admin, our top developer. They should have access to all of these really critical things. And I don't want to say that that person's risky. And I'm like, risk doesn't necessarily mean they're a bad person. Risky means that they have a way to expose a lot of things that your organization cares about. So you know what? Maybe you do care a little bit more about what that person's doing. Maybe you should watch what they're doing a little bit more. And that's sort of the responsibility of carrying a job like that. 
the inherent role, the inherent access, you know, that makes you a person who needs to be monitored differently. So you brought up this, this really interesting, it's something I'm starting to see as I'm like studying terminology and kind of how we use terminology in cybersecurity, where when you say something like risky, someone automatically assumes that there's a negative connotation to it, where it's not necessarily negative. It's something to be aware of and something to think about and be prepared for maybe. But it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, this person's really bad and eh, oh, lock it, lock it down. You know, it's not this crazy thing. It's like, so do you think that maybe there's still some work that we need to do as far as working on terminology or trying to change the way people perceive cybersecurity and and how we're kind of talking to our users? Yeah, no, I I don't think we're going to have much luck changing the connotation of common words. (laughs) Unfortunately. Darn. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> um, and it, we're so used to these like super hype language choices in cybersecurity. Like we are warriors, we are being attacked, we are like the guardians, and like we don't know zero trust, right? And so <laughs> it's an aggressive language set. So we're not priming ourselves at all to think about things in a more dynamic way. We're always thinking about it like risky, bad. I mean, these voices that I use are perfect right now, but <laughs> but it's it's part of the culture, right? So we're never looking for the good stuff. We're always looking for the bad stuff. And, um, you know, I think there's something to be said for paying attention to the boring, cool things that are going on to help us recontextualize. And that's a, that's a journey that we'll be taking together for many years. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And I think it's a challenge that we'll be struggling with for some time. Like you said, you know, one thing you said that reminded me a bit about what I'm hearing in cloud security, where I tend to focus is, uh, you know, you said knowing what's important. And it was going back to what you talked about, like implementing friction and, and people finding workarounds. You know, people have the concept now of, of implementing guardrails, like allowing people to be creative within a certain context, you know, but ultimately having guardrails so that things don't go too far, you know, like what's too much of a risk or too much of, uh, of something to allow, for example. And I think that's you know very similar in that vein. Um, one thing I did have to ask before we break is, uh, you know, I know you have a pet peeve, and that's calling humans the weakest link. Uh, so I can't let you go without teasing that out a bit. You know, why does that bother you so much? Why do we hear it so much? And how do we shift away from saying it so much? So it it like drives me insane. <laughs> so here's the deal. Again, we focus on the negative, right? So guess what? People are doing all day. We're driving cars, flying airplanes. Uh, taking care of our company's tech. The number of things that we catch are unreasonably high. We are very, very strong. And human performance and our creativity and how we notice things are a little bit different or off is, is way more of a pro than it is a con. There are limitations, but guess what? We can predict and understand the types of mistakes people are going to make. We just haven't cared to do that yet in our field. So, you know, Can we start capturing what that resilient behavior is? Yes. Can we better understand when we're most prone to make mistakes and mitigate the bad outcomes? Yes. So I think it's a cop out. I think it's a total blame game when we say people are the weakest link. I'm like, no, dude, no way. (laughs) Yeah, I I think it's an interesting point. And that's why I'm so interested in language and how we use language because it it does affect the people that we work with. You know, if we were constantly using the, these negative terms, this negative terminology, uh, if we try to shift that a little bit, that maybe that can change that. Uh, you mentioned a really important word there. I don't know, resilient or something. It might be kind of important. 
So I we're, we're going to uh, take you to our last question then, uh, since you kind of mentioned it. Uh, how do you feel about cyber resiliency and, and specifically about how human factors and security kind of blend together? So I have a weird definition for resilience. To me, all it means is adapting to change successfully, period. That's it. And so when I think about how we're adapting people and technology together, which by the way, uh, there's no such thing as separate anymore in my little world over here. It's all about how can we adapt technology to people? How are people adapting to technology and how can we make that more successful? And so, you know, as we start building more, learning more, identifying different threats, because guess what? They change every day. How can we adapt to that successfully together? And without the human factors lens, we're going to be missing a lot of the picture. Awesome. That's a, that's a great way to put it. Uh, so with that said, thank you for joining us on the show. I think this is a fascinating uh, area that's going to get more attention as we move forward, or I certainly hope it does. And like I said, thanks for joining us. And I hope everyone gets a lot, uh, lot from the conversation. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me today. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Resilient Cyber Podcast, hosted by Chris Hughes and Dr. Nikki Robinson. Check out new episodes and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other place you may listen to podcasts. You'll also find us on our website at resilientcyber.io and the Resilient Cyber Podcast on LinkedIn. See you next week. And remember, stay resilient.